my friend Nina here, okay? And she, she doesn't want me to embarrass her. She's saying, don't embarrass me. Yes, okay. So I'm not going to embarrass her. So, but uh, we've known Nina for a long time. So she's, um, you guys like Nina? Come on. We love Nina, don't we? She did a great job. So right up, right up our, right in our alley. So she's filled in here a few times, but we, uh, few, pre-COVID, we, we, uh, we had lunch with her and Sherry and I, and then Sherry had to leave. And so Nina and I just spent like three hours at the Cheesecake Factory sitting outside. Like, it was like endless conversation, right? I thought they were going to start charging us rent, but it was just an endless conversation about the Lord. And while we're sitting there, we're just sitting there, we're just hanging out, you know, and watching people walk through the mall. And this guy walks in the door, this dude, and he had this black leather jacket on it. You know, he kind of looked like punk rocker or whatever. And he had, I think he had a Mickey Mouse or something on the back. And he walks up and he's like, Nina? And he walks up, starts talking to Nina. And what was the name of your band? The Lead. The Lead. Nina used to play in a punk band, so people don't know this. So... Apparently, this guy was, her band was called The Lead. This was The Lead's super fan. I mean, he knew everything about this band. It was a Christian punk band, by the way. It was a Jesus punk band. And so he knew everything about it. He's sitting there, and I'm like literally watching them go back and forth. And the guy's like, you know, on your third album, like the third song on your third album. He's like talking like, I'm like, what? And so he was like just totally going in on on this band. And then Nina reaches in her purse and says, hey, I have a CD here. And he's like, no way. And so he gave her one of the CDs. But that was like a crazy moment in time and I was just like out of nowhere I'm like of all the places we're sitting here and the Leeds super fan is walking through the mall and sees Nina and yeah it was just I don't know it was a moment for me maybe it wasn't a moment for you but it was a, I was just like what I was like you were in a punk band she's like yeah you know I was in Christian punk band so anyway it was a fun story I enjoy that story Anyway, all right, so we're going to do the Gospel of John. I want to welcome everybody watching by stream. I want to welcome you all here. I want to encourage you to share the stream. Encourage some other people with the love of Jesus. So we're doing the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 6. And so I just want to kind of bring you up to speed uh, as to where we are in this, what, what kind of has taken place in the preceding moments before this moment happens. And what's going on is that Jesus, well, I'll read it for you and then we'll kind of back it up. So it says, uh, verse 13 says, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went to the temple and he taught and the Jewish leader and the Jews marveled saying, how does this man know the word having never studied? And Jesus, Jesus answered them and said, the doctrine that I speak is not mine, but it comes from the one who sent me. If anyone desires to do his will, he shall understand that the doctrine, he shall understand the things concerning the doctrine and whether it is from God or not. I speak not with my own authority. He who speaks from, from I, what does he say? I'm sorry, I've lost my place. I speak on my own authority. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, this one is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did Moses not give you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the people said to him, you have a demon. No one is trying to kill you. And Jesus answered them and said, I did one miracle and you marvel. Therefore, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but it came from Abraham. And And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that Moses' law should not be broken, why are you angry? Because I healed and made a man completely whole on the Sabbath. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. And so Jesus, the recap here is that 
right before this, Jesus just had a direct conversation with his brothers. So this needs to be clarified as well, is that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, made himself a body, was born of a virgin. This is an absolute fact. But Mary did not remain a virgin for the rest of her life. She had a husband, and she and Joseph had more children. And so Jesus ended up having four brothers. Two of them wrote letters. James, the book of James, is not James and John. It's Jesus' brother, half-brother, James, wrote the book of James. And Jude is written by his other brother, Jude. So you get those. But at this point in the story, they don't believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe he's God, right? So Last week we were kind of talking about this and trying to help parents out. It's possible to be a parent of a godly household and still raise children who don't believe. You know what I'm saying? It is possible to have faith in the home and that not everybody in the home walks in faith. You know, people saying, we need to get God in the home. You can't get any more God in this home. Jesus is in the home. And yet these guys don't believe, right? So they eventually believed. They eventually came around, which is, again, another encouraging word to parents, especially of children. The Bible says, train them up, help them understand, give them the best you got related to Jesus, point them in the direction. This is where we're working off of. And when they are older, they will not depart from it or they will return to it. What does this mean? You know, we, we train our kids in, in the gospel. We train our kids in, in the best we can with Jesus. We try to get them in church, and you should, and we try to teach them the things related to God and get them in a relationship with the Lord. This is extremely important. But the culture has a pull to it. I don't know if you're aware of it. So the culture oftentimes pulls. And so I, I, I liken it like this. Not that my kids are dogs, but this is the best way I could ever imagine it. I used to have two dogs, right? I had a dog that was a thoroughbred, man. This dog was a pedigree. Came from one of these, I don't know, whatever those, the kennel show. You know, that kennel show kennel? This dog was a Labrador and came out of a kennel. My wife was a model. She worked as a photographer, so this photographer had a lot of money, and he had this primo lab. I mean, this lab had every, you know, all the points, the whole thing, everything that a Labrador is supposed to have, this dog had it. His coat glowed. He was a brown Labrador, and he, like, glowed in the dark. You know, he shined. And uh, <laughs> the guy used to feed it steak. I mean, this is how, how crazy this was. And so Toby comes into our house, and we love Toby. But Toby didn't really have a respect for where he lived. Toby would run away all the time. Toby just didn't understand how good he had it. And so Toby, we'd always have to get in the car and go find Toby. Where's Toby? Where's Toby? He's running away. Then I had another lady. Her name was Dana. She gives me a dog. She's like, oh, Kevin, would you watch my dog for a few weeks? They're building my fence, and I don't have my fence up. And so if you could just watch my dog for a few weeks. Well, a few weeks turned into seven months, okay? And I'm bonded to this dog now. Me and this dog, we got something going on, right? We got a thing going on. You know, me and this dog, this dog's in love with me. I'm in love with this dog. This dog stares at me and watches me and follows me all over around the house. This dog was half shepherd, half chow. Best dog I ever had. Toby was good too, but this dog was amazing. This dog was a street dog. This dog used to get pelted by rocks. So Dana adopted the dog because she got tired of watching these neighborhood kids abuse this dog. So she adopted the dog. This dog... If I let this dog out in my front yard, it would not leave the site of my house. To Jesse, Jesse, Toby'd be like cruising down the street. I'm like, Toby, come back. Jesse'd be standing on the corner and she'd be staring at the house. 
Like, I'm not leaving, man. I, I, I know what's out there, and I know what I got here, right? And so Jessie, I mean, she had, her own little, she had her own little pillow, and the pillow was always in the living room corner. Toby went wherever he went. But Jessie always had to have her eyes on me. Wherever I went, I'd look, and Jessie would be laying there staring at me, right? I'd move, and Jessie would follow me across. I'm like, this dog loves me. This dog is mad at so anyway, but it was a very, very loyal dog. Oftentimes when we train our children and kids grow up and people are, you're, you're a product of a lot of advantages, you don't appreciate and value the advantages that you've been given. Can I get a witness? Right? Yes. But some of us who've been punched in the face by life and kind of come from a little bit of a harder place and nothing was ever handed to us or made easy, we value it when it's given. Can I get a witness there? So what happens a lot of times, we raise our children in Shangri-La as Christian parents because we want to shield them and shelter them and all this other stuff. I don't know why I'm talking about parenting because I didn't go to hear this first service, but I will. And then they, they, kinda, they don't understand what they have. But what happens is, is that life will punch them in the face. It's inevitable. Mike Tyson said everybody's got a plan until life punches them in the face. Life will punch you in, we should all get a witness on this. Can I get a witness? Life will punch you. In the, and so what happens is the kids, they go out into the big world. I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. They go out in the world and boom. And they're like, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. So if they have the Lord in them, they return to God. They come back. Right? They come back a different person. They may have a different expression. They may, you know, whatever. They may not go to the same church you go to. That's okay. As long as they follow Jesus. This is the idea. You want your children to follow the Lord, because, but they learn. People learn. This is what happens. And so Jesus' brothers eventually come to faith, and they become extremely fervent. They're extremely fervent. Like, if you ever read the book of James, James can't be more passionate. James is, and you're looking at two different personalities. So it's interesting, like, if you ever read the book of James and the book of Jude, which you should, you're going to see that these were, were Jesus' brothers, and they had two entirely different philosophies as it came to teaching. Jude's like, do everything in your power to develop yourself in the most holy faith. So James is like, come on, get in there, grow, develop yourself. James is like, pull it together. You ask and you don't receive because you're selfish. I mean, James is coming like right at you. And Jude's like, hey, you know, just kind of, it's just, it's just interesting when you, when you look at that. So they're having a, they're, he's having a debate. So Jesus in the, in the last part of this chapter, earlier part of this chapter, the Feast of Tabernacles is going on. So once a year, it would be a national camping trip. The, they, they were, uh, the Jews were commanded to hold a camping festival. And so basically they all lived in tents. Everybody would go outside and live in tents. It was to remember the wilderness wandering it was joy it was campfire campfire songs marshmallows i don't know Did they have marshmallows chuck i don't know but anyway they're having they're having all kinds of stuff it was a it was a joyous event it was called the feast of tabernacles and so this was one of the three feasts that every male was was required to attend and so jesus's brothers are telling him like dude stop living behind the scenes stop living up here in galilee and go down to jerusalem and let everybody know who you are like put it out there and so Jesus is like, look, I'm going, but I'm not going to go up with you. My time has not come. Jesus, the Bible says, goes up to the feast, but he goes up in secret, which is crazy. And he took a road that no one else followed. Most of them followed the outer roads to avoid Samaria. Luke 9 tells us that when Jesus went to this feast, he went right through Samaria. He takes the road nobody else wants to follow, 
and they had a problem with Samaria. Jesus didn't have a problem with Samaria. People have a problem with your junk. Jesus doesn't have a problem with your junk. You understand that? He loves you too much to leave you the same, but he will walk the road in your life that no one else will walk with you. He will go down roads with you, and he will find you on roads where no one else is looking. Everybody else wants to avoid you. Jesus will meet you. He'll come find you. He'll work with you. This is who he is. And so Jesus ends up going to the feast. He shows up at the feast. And then they, they were trying to get him to capitalize on his notoriety. It had been six months since uh, Jesus had been to Jerusalem. He was just there. So between five, chapter 5 and chapter 6 is six months. Jesus goes to Jerusalem and sits down and starts teaching. But right before this happens, cancel culture in Jerusalem is in full effect. And so you think that cancel culture is a Western modern idea that just came about. No, cancel culture existed in the earliest of times. And what cancel culture is, is that we control the levers of community. We control the levers of power. We control Facebook and YouTube. We control the economy. And we control whoever. We tell you what to say and what you can't say. And if you don't say what we want, you're like, we don't do that. Have you, are you awake this is all over the place. And if we don't like what you do, we'll cancel you. We'll cause you to lose your job. We'll edit you. We'll shadow ban you on Facebook. We'll cancel your YouTube page. You won't go on Twitter. We'll do everything in our power to shame you. We'll put your address out there and tell people where you live. We will cancel you because you don't follow the system. And so that's what they were doing to Jesus. No one, the Bible says no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. The Jews had these people on such lockdown. They had created a religious system where everything was interdependent upon their system. If you wanted to keep your job, you did what the rabbis said. If you wanted to stay in the temple, you did what the rabbis said. They could excommunicate you. They would get, kick you out of the temple and literally cause a divorce in your home because she could come, but you weren't allowed. You said something. You crossed the line. You're out. She's in right? Or vice versa. Then they would put pressure on your employer. You go back home. You go back home to wherever you're from. Rabbis send in a ladder. Hey, so-and-so isn't towing the line. He's talking about Jesus. We forbid him to talk about Jesus. So if you want to go to the temple and you want to keep in good standing with us, then you need to fire him. This is what was going on. And they, they were in complete fear of saying, this is what's going on now. Cancel culture. Everybody wants to cancel Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus. <gasps> Don't talk about Jesus. Cancel culture. Cancel culture. Oh, we'll talk about Jesus the good man, but we won't talk about Jesus the person that he truly is. We talk about a cultural Jesus. We don't talk about a kingdom Jesus, right? Jesus the good guy, the guy who's healing people, the guy who's giving out fish and chips, the guy who talks about love. Oh, he's all good. Have you, have you ever read what he says? Have you read anything that he says? He's exclusive. He's not inclusive. Jesus is exclusive. And where the cancel culture comes in is they want to make Jesus one among many. Jesus is not one among many. He is the one and only. There is no one like him. No one has ever made his claims, and he will not allow himself to be lumped with everyone else. He won't. He won't. He never tolerated. They would say, oh, you're a good teacher. The one thing you see over and over again in Scripture is anytime Jesus called him good, he's like, why are you calling me good? Why? Why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God. So are you calling me God? Because you don't get the chance to call me good. No one, Jesus doesn't allow people 
to call him what he, you, you got to make a choice. C.S. Lewis, famous, famous author, wrote and said that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He, there's no other option for him. You don't get another option. You either have, you have, but everyone is forced into a decision when it comes to Jesus. There's no option here. And he does it on purpose. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide. I came to drop. I am the wedge of all society. Who am I? Am I God? If Jesus is a liar, go your way. No problem. If Jesus is one among many, go your way. No problem. If Jesus is a lunatic and a madman and somebody he's like off his chain, right? No problem. Go your way. But if he is Lord, then you are compelled and commanded to go his way. That's the fact. You, you have to decide. You cannot muddle him in between all of these worlds. It's what, it's what uh, the prophet, uh, um, it's my son's name, <laughs> Elijah. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. See, Elijah said to the people, you cannot stagger between two opinions. Stop staggering between two opinions. If Jesus, if God is God, then serve him. If he's not, you know what he says? Go serve the gods of the culture. Oh, let's ring that truth out in the American church. If Jesus is God, follow him. If he's not, then stop playing the game like Elijah said to the whole nation, then go serve the gods of your forefathers or the gods of your ancestors, the gods of the culture. Go and serve and do what the pagans do. Go worship their gods. This, 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 is, this, is where, this is the inconvenient truth of who Jesus is. You know, he, this is who he is. So here, here, why do they want to murder him? Well, let's just think about what he, what he claims, right? Let me just give you a list. He claims to be the savior of the world, the one and only savior of the world. He claims to be the determiner of all man's eternal destiny. He is the source of everlasting life, the only source. He is the only way to God. He, he claims to be, have the right to be honored and worshiped as equal and to be God himself. He claims to be one with the Father, the power to give life and to raise the dead. He claims to be able to raise himself from the dead. You say he's crazy. That's the point, right? He's the one, he claims to be the one from whom all the Old Testament spoke, and he is the fulfillment and the subject matter of all Scripture. He claims to be the supreme judge of all men and that he alone will judge mankind and will seat in glory and will be seated in glory. He claimed to be without sin. He claimed to have the authority of, in heaven and earth to forgive sin and the only and the exclusive power and authority to do that. He claimed to be the master and the ruler of the Sabbath. He claimed the right to answer prayer. He said he's greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, and greater than Abraham. To have been, and greater than Mohammed, greater than Buddha, greater than Krishna, greater than L. Ron Hubbard, and greater than the way you think. Amen. Amen. I'm not done. <laughs> Thank you, Mimi. We're on a roll here. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the one and only true anointed Christ and Messiah. And he claims to, ha to, to have the right to be seated at the right hand of majesty forever. And you wonder why they want to kill him? They want to kill him because he's exclusive. So it's the same reason why the culture and Oprah and all these other people, Jesus isn't the one and only. Ever watch Oprah say that? She says it all the time. Jesus isn't the one and only. Jesus isn't the one and only. There's many paths to God. There's many paths to God. Well, whatever. You know, I, don't you, I, I liken it to like flying on an airplane. You know, and the pilot's sitting there saying, you know, I think there's many ways to land an airplane. What's that? 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm not picking on Oprah, but she, she, she definitely has, a, has a, a platform, you know, and she uses it, and she denounces Christ, and she denounces Jesus publicly and openly, you know, and that's wrong, and she's misguided completely, and her biggest thing is Jesus is one among many. That's the culture, and that's accepted. What's not accepted is the mutuality or the, or the exclusivity of Jesus, you want cancel culture to show up when Jesus put him out there as exclusive. This is how Jesus puts himself out there. Jesus puts himself out there as exclusive. I am the way, the truth, the life. It's it. There's no other way. That's it. You know, and this is what he calls us towards. There's no middle ground. He preached to thousands. Only 120 showed up at Pentecost. After preaching to thousands... Only 120 could actually digest what it was that he was saying. A lot of fans, very few followers. It's truth. We got lots of fans. Oh, yes. Oh, God, Jesus, you're so amazing. You're amazing. And then he says, this is what it means to follow me. Whoop, there's the door. You mean it's going to cost me something to follow Jesus? You mean I can't serve God as I understand him to be? You mean I actually have to deny myself? <gasps> I have to deny myself? I have to take up my cross, whatever burden it is for me to follow him and follow him? You mean I actually got to get up early and come to church? Are you kidding me? That's such a burden. That's such a burden. Most Christians can't even get up and come to church, unfortunately. Take up your cross and follow. Ugh. Ugh. What time is it? Oh, no, I'm not going today. No. Roll over, grab the pillow. Right? No, serious. Too close. This, this is the idea. When you come to church on Sunday, you make a statement before heaven and earth. It's not about you. You're testifying to all realms that Jesus is my God, and I will worship him. I will make no offering to him that costs me nothing. If this costs me something and this is inconvenient for me, it doesn't matter. I'm making the offering. That's what you're doing. Everything is a testimony before heaven and earth. When you give, it's a testimony before heaven and earth that your money doesn't flow from this world. My money flows from heaven. That's what this is what this is all about. It's a testimony, right? It's that's that's we we put our money where our mouth is, or we make a proclamation with our lives. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Just a thought. It says, oh, you guys got all the honor, fans. You're amazing, Jesus. You're amazing. Oh, Jesus, you're so amazing. Every time he asked them for something, they could give him nothing. Zero. Zero. It's just. It's just. You know, what is? Mankind is in a slumber of darkness. Jesus is the light, and he is the sounding alarm to awaken us from the slumbering darkness. The Bible tells us as Christians to cast off the unfruitful works of darkness. Stop doing stuff that doesn't profit you and the relationship with the Lord. Just admit it and quit it. Jesus comes to the feast in secret. Why? Because they wanted to kill him. They were looking for him. And so what was happening, and so the, the Jews had sent out all of these people into the city. They're specifically looking for Jesus. And so the caravans would come down from the north. People traveled in caravans. Galileans had a distinct accent. They said, we knew they're Galileans because of the way they spoke. Peter, we know you're a Galilean because of your accent. We know you're from Miami because of that Spanglish that you speak. 
right? I shared it last week. I could be at Disney World. We would be at Disney or Universal or wherever, and I'd be up there, and I'd be like, that person's from Miami. And she was like, how do you know? I go, I'm telling you, I can just tell that person's from Miami. There's a culture here. I don't know if you're aware of that. I mean, there's a, there's a, anyway. They could tell that when a Galilean was in town, so they were looking for Jesus among the Galileans, but he didn't come down with the rest of them. He came down in secret. Not that he was afraid of them, but he was on a divine timetable. No one was going to take his life until he was ready to give it. When he was ready to give it, he came riding in on a donkey and allowed the city to proclaim him and allowed the people to proclaim him king. He didn't hide anything. He did everything out in the open. But right now, his time's not yet. His time's not yet. His time's not yet. The city is full. Religious leaders are looking to him. He goes to the temple and he sits down. Why is this important? It's important because teaching, Jesus of all the names, he has many titles. One of his dominant titles is rabbi, which means teacher. He's a teacher. Why? So if God, the creator, has it set as a high priority to teach us, then there's a couple of things that need to be understood from that. Then, number one, we must be designed to be taught. Because he's, not, he's working in accordance with our design. So if the Lord is teaching, then we are therefore designed to be taught. If the Lord is teaching, then, and if he values teaching, we're designed to be taught. We need to value teaching. We need to have a high priority for the word of God, and we need to have a high priority for the, let me be clear, because I'm going to say it, clear teaching of the word of God. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, not a word, you know, not an exhortation. Preach the word, dude. You know, you got all these problems, Timothy, come bring the scripture. Teach them the Bible. Teach them the word. Teach them to understand the things as it relates to the scripture. Don't teach an opinion. Don't teach a feeling. Don't teach a popularity contest. He told them, teach the word. Be instant in season and out. Teach it whether people agree with it or not. Teach the truth, right? There's some things wrapped around that that I'm not going to get into. Like, there, you know, there's a temperament to it. You don't just you know, throw it out there. Jesus sits down and teaches, which tells us that we're designed to be taught. So we must value teaching. Say it with me. I must value being taught. It's true. We're designed to be taught. We're moved with instruction in the inner world. So the, the, here's the thing, right? This is, this is, this is really the, the crossroad of what I'm trying to say here. When Jesus is talking about teaching, the way that we are designed, so if we're talking about how God teaches and how he has made us, we're not taught, we're not designed to be intellectually trained. That can happen, and we do have the capacity for that. When God is talking about teaching, he's talking about a training in the inner world. The Bible is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a divider of the divides soul from spirit, bone from marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible is living, right? So the way that man is designed. Okay, let me just ask you this question. Your inner world determines your outer world. I don't know if you're aware of that. As a person believes, thinks, perceives, and understands in their heart, so they are. You understand that? This is how God has designed us. The second thing is that whatever we sow into our heart will produce. The Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it come all the issues of life are coming from your heart. If I take, I'm trying to think, okay, so tomatoes, that keeps coming. So if I take a tomato seed 
and I, in, here in South Florida, and I put it in the ground, can I expect to get an orange seed, an orange tree? No. Why? And if I do that, should I yell at the soil for not giving me the orange seed? The, the soil doesn't care what seed you put in it. The soil will produce the seed that is sown in it. Your soul, your inner world, your mind, your will, and your emotions, that's your soul. Your spirit is your personality and the person that you are. The other part of you is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your soul doesn't care what seed is sown. It will produce the seed that is sown. But it's not going to tell you what seed you should sow in your heart. You must see. <laughs> Help me out here. So the seed that is sown, it doesn't care. So you got, so like, let's just take a couple of things. So you have nightshade. Anybody know what nightshade is? It's a poison, but it has this really beautiful purple flower. Looks beautiful, but it's toxic. Then you have sunflowers, right? Sunflowers are beautiful, but they're not, but they're non-toxic. So if I eat nightshade, I'm going to die. If I eat sunflower seeds, I'm not going to die. You understand? But the, the, I can sow a nightshade into the soil, and it will produce what I sow. I, you put toxic things into you, and what will the soil produce? Toxic things. If you surround yourself in toxic environments, you feed on toxic words, you feed on toxic mentalities, toxic thoughts, whatever it may be, your soul will produce that. You cannot stop it. You can't stop it. Jesus said the seed, when it is sown, it grows, whether by day or by night. The seed is going to grow. You What you sow in you. But if you sow the right things in your heart. So the idea here is that as we believe and perceive and think and understand in our hearts, so we become. Guard our hearts with all diligence. So if you put toxic stuff in, toxic's coming out. It's just the way it is. And so some of you, you've been harvesting toxicity, you've been harvesting failure, you've been harvesting corruption, you've been harvesting anger, you've been harvesting frustration, whatever it may be, for years. Maybe it's time to start sowing a different seed. Maybe it's time to start not allowing certain things to keep being sown in the field of your soul. Just maybe. Just a thought. And so it's time. You have to sow the right things. You have to be around positive people, positive places, positive things. Yeah, everything, everything is with the Lord is always potential, always hope, always future. And so if you're sowing things in your heart that have no hope and has no future, you're not going to produce hope from, from despair. It just isn't going to come. You have to find the good. And so the Bible says this, Psalm 119, I've hidden, my, I've hidden your word in my heart so that my life would not sin against you. Right? That's basically what David is saying. I put the word in my soul so that my life doesn't go against you. Because I know what I put in my soul is the way my life is going to be presented. It's true. If you watch toxic things on television, those toxic things are coming out of you. You listen to toxic things on the radio or the music or whatever it may be, those toxic things are going to come out of you. You can't stop it. You have to build into yourself. Self-development. Anybody know who Warren Buffett is? Anybody? All right. Okay, Warren Buffett. They asked him for an investment strategy for 2023. Anybody know what he said? <laughs> no. No, he said invest in yourself. He said any investment you make in your personal development is the best investment you can do in 2023. It's personal development. Right. Exactly. You're personally developing right now. You're here hearing the word of God. Word is being sown in your heart. Jesus said the sower sows the what? The seed, right? And it falls on soil. What soil? The soil of the heart. And in 
they, it, it will produce. It will be consumed because it's neglected. It will be devoured because its soil is shallow and it's not allowed to go further. Two of them root. One of them can't produce fruit because it's too entangled in the culture. And then the other one roots and fruits. So the sower, the sower sows the seed. And the, so, and the word and the, the, the soul is the soil of the seed. You've got to realize that your, soil, your soul doesn't care. But it will produce. It does not care. Your soul's not going to make you not do that. So you keep doing that, that's the same thing is going to happen. Right? Just the way that it's going to be. As a man thinks in his heart, Proverbs 23, 7, it's not about the intellect. It's sowing the seed, of, it's sowing the seed in the soil of the soul. The idea, the way that Jesus teaches us is through imagination. So the way that we teach, this is important too because it relates back to teaching. And if you can understand yourself, you can learn to have victory. If you can understand how God made you, all right? So anybody here work on cars? Anybody here work on cars at all, right? You work on anything, right? So if you don't understand the car, you can't fix the car. Are you with me? Right? Or computers. Oh, I don't work on Macs. I only work on PCs. Or I don't work on PCs. I only work on Macs. Because you, you don't understand. If you don't understand, you cannot fix the issue. You have to understand how God made you. And it's not hard, but we don't want to do it. We have to understand how we're made and how we're wired. We learn not through, uh, you know, like a calculus equation. This is why math is so hard for people to comprehend. Those of you that do understand math, you probably have a conceptual way of understanding math that other people don't. You probably see it differently, and that's why you understand it. Because most times people are taught math in lines, right? And we can't grasp it because I, I was one. I mean, I'm all right, but I'm not that good. You know, math is not my subject. I mean, I'm, I, I pass, okay? It's about it. I'm like, Algebra, pff, you know, when am I ever going to get this? But, hey, I did good in geometry, but anyway, I don't know what to tell you about that. Calculus, eh, you know, didn't make it too far. But my point being is that, that, that we're not, we don't learn in a linear way. We learn in an imaginative way. And the way you actually can learn anything is to, is to use it imaginatively. You know, you use it imaginatively. We learn through seeing and understanding images within the soul. This is how we learn. We can train the intellect but the way that we learn, this is why when Jesus is talking, what is he using? A lot of pictures, right? Yeah, he's using parables, which is a comparative way, parabolos, to, to lay alongside and compare. So he's using parables, but he's using visual images. There was a man, he went on a journey, he had a bag of money and a horse. Well, I'm paraphrasing. While he was walking through the valley, he got overtaken by robbers. I was like, wow, this is like a movie. These robbers beat him, man. They beat him down so bad that he laid on the ground and was bleeding, longing for someone to come by and help him, wanting someone to come by and help him. And a Pharisee walked by and didn't help him. <gasps> and then a Levite walked by and didn't help him. <gasps> and then a Samaritan. Oh, Samaritans. Ah, they already had the image. The Samaritan came, and a Samaritan carried him, carried him to an inn. Pate went to the end, told the innkeeper, take care of him. I want you to bondage his wounds. I want you to oil him. I want you to take complete care of him. Whatever the cost is, I want you to help this man. Whatever the expense is, you relay it to me. Jesus said, which one was the neighbor? How many knows they could understand that? And they would never forget that story because it's implanted in them. It's through the imagination. Children, before the age of seven, they do these tests. That's why every parent thinks their child is a genius. 
before the age of seven. My child is a genius because they have an imaginative means of understanding. They understand concepts through the imagination. This is what they do. But somewhere between after the age of seven, it's a small percentage. Only a small percentage of children retain the ability to imaginatively learn. Only a fraction. Somewhere along the line, our society, our culture, our way of life, we beat the imagination out of people. And they no longer think that way. What did Jesus tell us? If we're going to perceive the kingdom, we must become like what? Children. It's all there. What is he saying? If you want to understand this, you're not going to understand it in your highbrow, fancy-schmancy ways. You know? You're not going to understand this with your calculus equations. If you want to understand the kingdom, you've got to embrace it as a child. You've got to have it imaginatively. It has to come from that place. You have to believe in the impossible. You know, you put a little girl in a princess dress, and she doesn't just walk around in that princess dress. She thinks she is the princess. It's true. I mean, she knows it. And if you say, your highness, she'll stick her hand out with a ring. She'll be like, yes, I am. Right? She plays right into it. Or a little boy who thinks he's an astronaut or thinks he's a warrior. Right? They don't just imagine it. They're embracing it. This is the kind of understanding we learn through that process. So it's important that you understand that. Like even concepts and things, even if you can't understand things, try to understand it imaginatively, and you tend to learn because we're wired like that. So Jesus has created us to learn. He's a teacher. He's created us to learn, right? He says the sower sows the word. He says you must become like a child. Embrace the wonder and the imagination. So that being the same, we have to have a high value for these things. The Bible says the day will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. People aren't going to put up with somebody teaching clear things about Jesus or clear things about the kingdom. Or they won't put up with it. People won't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. It's this whole cancel culture thing about Jesus. They don't want to hear it. They only want to hear teachers that, that teach them what they want. What they want. <laughs> You're a preacher, man. You've got to start uh, refining yourself there. So he teaches them, and here comes. And the, as soon as you teach, anytime you stay with me, anytime I step out, Come on, help me out. Anytime I step out, now you can help me. Now you can help me. When I, when I go like that, you can help me. So, now, so as, anytime I step out, <laughs> the critics will come. That's right. Anytime you step out, the critics will come. Most people don't want to step out because they fear the criticism, right? So here's Jesus. He steps out. He starts teaching, and immediately he's surrounded by critics. He's surrounded by critics. Say, and say it with me. Critics. And cynics don't count. They don't count. So as a pastor, so I'll share this with you, just because I know it's going to be true in your life too, but I'll put it to you from my perspective. Um, there are a lot of people who want to tell me things, right? They want to tell me what we should do, how we should do it. They want to bring correction into my life personally, as if it's their mission to correct me personally, Right? And often we'll smile and nod, and if they keep pressing it, I'll look at them and I'll say, so explain to me what your life has produced and what qualifies you to bring me that correction. Show me what your life has produced, number one. Oh, your life has produced nothing? Well, you're immediately disqualified from bringing me that correction. It's not that I'm above correction. It's not that you're not above correction. We're all above correct. We're not, none of us are above correction. But we got a lot of people who want to correct, and they've done nothing. Critics don't count. You criticize having done nothing, and you feel your role in life is to critique other people. No, it's not. No, it's not. Your, life, your role is to bear fruit. 
So we have a rule. My wife and I have a rule. If I don't know that you love me, then you're not the one to tell me that. If I don't believe or know that you have my best interest in heart, then you're not the one to tell me that. You, you don't, it, that's just the way it is. Like, are you telling me that to give me some sort of criticism? Or do you have my best interest in heart? Do you truly love me? Because that's what love is, the highest good. And so when it comes to people criticizing you, there are people that criticize you and they're destructive critics. They're not creative critics. They're not saying, hey, Joe, let me help you with this design and let me show you some things. I think you got the seam in the wrong place. What do you think? You know, it's not like a constructive criticism. It's like, that completely sucks. What do you think you're doing there? You know, it's like, it's that kind of place. And that's the place, not the place that we need to be. Those types of people don't count. These people are criticizing Jesus. They're coming around him and they, they critique him. And they say, how does this know nothing? So here's how they're talking to him. Jesus is there teaching. They don't even address him. They're addressing the crowd. How does this know nothing know anything? That's what they're saying. They don't even look at him. That's how much indifference they had to him. This guy's a know nothing. How does he know anything? Why are you listening to this know nothing? And Jesus teaches them in the temple courts. It was always a public, it was always a public gathering. And he looks at them. Say it with me. Always. A public gathering. This big debate whether the church should meet publicly. Read your Bible. They always met publicly. Jesus didn't go to a house and say, hey, I'm having a Bible study over at Joe's house tonight. Why don't you come over? I'm having a Bible study over at Mary's house tonight. Why don't you guys come over? He went public. Everywhere he went, he found the biggest place he could, and he brought it publicly. The, Old Te the New Testament, when they came to Christ and the church was formed, they met in the temple courts. They met in Solomon's porch. It couldn't be more public. They were in the courts. They didn't reign there, so they were having outdoor meetings all the time. And then they met in houses. They were meeting in houses, and they were meeting publicly. They were meeting in houses, and they were meeting publicly. But they never not met publicly. They always met publicly. There's no debate on this. People want to have all these different debates. It's, a, it's an irrelevant debate. It's there. Jesus goes and meets publicly. I'm not again. We, look, we have small groups. Small groups are essential. You should be involved in a small group. Small groups are incredibly powerful, and they should be there because they build the relationship. They build the network. They build the stickiness. They build the love and the, and the one to another. So if you're not part of a small group, you need to become part of a small group. We've got great small groups here, men's group being one of them, women's group being another one, and, and along with several other. We have affinity groups. We have a lot of groups here, and you should connect. But that is not to displace the public gathering just saying. Jesus said, my doctrine is not mine. It's from the one who sent me. What's he doing? He's alluding to his identity. He's like, the one who sent me. Who sent you? You know, that's the point. They knew who sent him. They knew who he claimed to be. And the reason that he's saying this is he says, the things that I'm teaching don't, are not coming from the place where your teaching's coming from. What they would do they would take the scripture or they would take, to, take the teaching of a rabbi, which is really second temple. What they started to do was they, they threw the scripture aside and they started teaching rabbinical teaching. That's where the Jewish community is today for the most part. They don't teach the scripture. They, they teach rabbinical thought. They're teaching the teachings of rabbis instead of the scripture themselves. And so they would get together and a bunch of rabbis would get together and have a debate. And so they would have a debate and they would come up with a truth and say, okay, this is our truth. And then this other guys would say, oh, no, we don't agree with that. So they'd form their own sect. And so they had all these different sects of Jews that were running around. Jesus is like, I, you know, the truth that I'm telling you isn't coming through philosophical debate. The truth I'm telling you is straight from the throne. This is truth. This isn't debatable truth. I'm not asking for an opinion. I'm not taking a vote on this truth. This truth is truth. 
right? It is what it is. And so they came to an agreement on that. They would quote each other. So they were, the rabbis were always quoting each other. And so Jesus even tells them, you, so what's going on with these guys, right? Jesus is correcting them, and he's telling them, you're not seeking, you're not doing this for the honor of the Lord. That's the first thing he tells them. The Lord isn't in their consciousness. They're trying to please each other. The second thing he's correcting them on is you're not even caring for the people. That's what he tells them. It would be one thing if you didn't honor the Lord, but you actually were caring for the people. You don't do that either. You don't do that either. So there's no thought of God in your conversation and your teaching, and there's no concern. It's not even a concern. There's no development of the people. You're not doing this to develop people. You're doing this to please each other. And that's what they were doing. They were just pleasing each other. It was like a, like a you know, high-five syndrome. It's kind of like academics when they write papers. I know if you're an academic, you can throw something at me, and I'll, I'll duck. I'll you know, we, they, we write all these papers, the PhD papers. No one ever reads it. It doesn't really benefit mankind, but it impresses the academic community. And so all the people in the academic, oh, hey, Bill, I read your thesis, you know, on the new quantum concept of the atomic level of energy, you know, completely irrelevant to, the, to 90% of the world, but relevant to that community. And they just run around giving each other accolades. Giving each, it's like actors, you know. They act like they're the art. And if you're an actor, I'm sorry if I can throw something at me too. That's all right. You're like you're stepping on everybody's toes today. You know, my wife was an actress and she was a model, so I understand all of this. So don't, don't you know, I've, I've been there. I've done that. A lot of vanity. Everybody, it's like the Oscars. It's like we're just constantly applauding each other. Endless award shows. You know, just give, giving each other awards for what? What are we giving in a we were so creative? Oh my gosh, the art that you bring to the world is just so amazing. Really? Is it as good as the sunset? No? Okay, well, I don't think it's that good, right? It's just this idea, and this is kind of the concept of what these guys are doing, is they're just honoring each other, running around honoring each other. There was no honor for the Lord. There was no honor for the people. It was about themselves and the religious institution that they had created. And so the Jews had an agreement about debate, and Jesus is going to say it with me. He's going to give a key. Come on. He's going to give a key. He's going to give a key to understanding Scripture. He puts it right here. He says, if anyone wills to do my Father's will, he will understand the things concerning my doctrine. And he will understand that this is from God and that I, don't, and that I speak upon my own authority. So here he's making himself equal with God. But he says, if anyone will wills to do it. In other words, the key here is what? The key here is that understanding doesn't come through human debate. Understanding of the kingdom comes through revelation. And the revelation only comes with a willful intent to obey it. God does not give revelation to someone who is not willfully willing to obey the revelation when it's given. He doesn't do that. In other words, if you want to obey this and you're willing to follow it, it will be revealed to you. This is oftentimes how we do. We want to know God's will, not because we want to know God's will to do it. We want to know God's will so that we can compare it with our will. We want to know God's will so that we not only can compare it with our will, we can compare it to everybody else's will and we can get to pick and choose which will is the best. That's the way people are. And so that's why oftentimes people struggle to know God's will because in your heart you really don't want to know God's will. You really don't. You really want your will. You just want to, you, you think you've got a better plan. You just want to see if he might, just by chance, have a better plan than you. It doesn't come that way. So when we understand, like, how Scripture is, it's basically, I say it all the time, you know nothing. <laughs> My wife tells me all the time, you've got to stop saying that, Kevin. I'm like, I'm not going to stop saying that. It's like, you tell people they don't know anything. I'm like, I'm not telling people they don't know anything. I'm saying I don't know anything. 
Everything I think I know, I know nothing. I put over here and I say, Jesus, you are everything. Anything I know is irrelevant. What you know is relevant. You teach me. You guide me. I will to do your will. Right? This is the idea. We don't know anything. He knows everything. We're servants. It doesn't mean that I'm not equipped. It doesn't mean I haven't trained myself. I do. I do all of those things. But I don't rely on that. I rely on him. That's the difference. It's revealed. So here it is. Here's Proverbs. So here's, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Proverbs 1.23. Turn at my reproof. When I correct you, listen to me. I will give you my spirit, and he will make my words known. Right there. That's what Jesus is saying. He's correcting them, but they won't turn it as rebuke. Therefore, the words can never be made. Not only that, they don't get the Holy Spirit. Right? If you'll listen to me, the Holy Spirit will illuminate you and give you understanding. But if you're not going to listen to me, don't expect the Holy Spirit. So right there, you can cut that partnership out because you're not willing to listen. So if you won't listen, the Holy Spirit will not reveal anything to you if you won't listen. This is why the gospel is for the poor. The Bible says the blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that understand their spiritual poverty. The kingdom's right within their reach. They know they don't have anything. They're not presuming anything. They're going to take whatever's offered to them. That's the idea, that they're willing. They're willing to embrace anything that gets them out of the place that they're in. That's why the gospel is for the poor. It's it, it, like the poor in spirit. You can be rich and broken, and broken in spirit, or you can be poor and broken in spirit. It doesn't matter. Economically, is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the inner world, you know? And it's, it's this whole idea that they're willing. Therefore, when the gospel is preached to the willing, it's revealed. And oftentimes when the gospel is preached to the unwilling, it's revealed, but it's denied. It's pushed aside. Just push it right aside. The revelation comes, but they won't embrace it. A lot of times people want to have all the answers of this kingdom before they make a decision about Jesus. You're not getting any answers. The bread belongs to the children, and it's only to the sons and daughters. To the sons and daughters, it is given the mysteries to understand the kingdom. So if you're not a son and daughter, you're not given the right to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. You don't have the right, and he's not giving it to you. You have a question? Oh, I was going to say, don't ask me questions now, man. Come on. <laughs> I'm sure you have a question, but you know, I had a question. Okay, you receive it? That's awesome. All right. I'm having a good time up here, right? It's kind of... <laughs> The idea is the pursuit. When you want it, he'll give it to you. Hunger, Christian, is what brings the revelation. Not, I want it, I want it, I want it. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants it. I say it all the time. Everybody wants it. But not everybody is willing to do whatever it takes. That separates all. You have 100% of people, 100% of people want it. But, not, but 5% are the ones that really were willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah, Jesus just had a whole crowd in front of him. He fed him fish and chips. He said, you're hungering for the wrong thing. You come to me because I feed your belly. What do you think, and it, because I pulled that out of the air, what do you think I would give to you if you hungered for spiritual truth? You think I'd give you something a little bit more than something that would fill your belly? He was trying to revert. He's trying to, he's trying to not only convert, he's trying to elevate their, their, what they were thinking about, moving them out of natural thinking. That was what he's trying to do, and they couldn't, they couldn't grasp it. They couldn't understand it because they weren't hungry for spiritual things. They were hungry for physical bread. That's why the revelation went right over their head. Whoop. 
right? You have Mary Magdalene. She was hungry for anything that came down her way, and she threw it all on Jesus, right? You have Mary and Martha. She was hungry for everything that ever went her, came her way, and she took the most valuable thing in her world, and she broke the alabaster box over him because she was hungry for that. She wanted it. Matthew is a classic example of somebody who wanted it. Matthew is one of my absolute favorite character studies. Matthew's a Levite. He's of the tribe of Levi. He's an heir to the priesthood. He, he could serve in the temple. He could be these guys wearing these long robes. He could be the rich guy. He could be blowing it up. He could be that guy. But he despised that system. How do we know he despised that system? He's working for Rome. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, hates that system so much that he buys in to the system that's against the system that he hates. And he serves the Romans. But as soon as he sees Jesus, what does he do? He leaves it, right? He didn't want that. And he didn't want this. And as soon as he saw what he was hungry for, that's right. And Matthew had more revelation into the Old Testament scripture than any of the other ones. How do you know? Read his gospel. This was done that it might be fulfilled. This was done that it might be fulfilled. This was done that it might be fulfilled. Matthew was hammering Old Testament. Why? Because he had revelation. Why did he have revelation? Because this is everything I have ever been looking for. And nothing matters to me. Peter and James could go back. Peter, James, and John could go back and fish. Matthew couldn't go back. When you left that table, it was done. There's no going back. So we talk about, oh, James and John, they left their fishing boats. Yeah, and they went back to it. Matthew wasn't going back. He wasn't going back. You can't go back. There was like 50 people behind you that wanted that table. You paid Rome to do that. You paid Rome to extort people. So Matthew had to purchase that table. He purchased that right to be a tax collector, and he ripped the money from his own people and gave it to the exile, gave it to the Romans. Why? Because he wanted nothing to do with it. Crazy when you understand what's actually going on with this guy, you know, and what he did. And why did he have revelation? Because he wanted it. He was hungry. Jesus, you are everything. You are not something. You are not a thing. You are not, you know, a, you know like Christians, we treat it like, you know, like Jesus, we're just so casual about it. He's everything. We have Christmas and Easter Christians. Good God. Really? Christmas and Easter, it's the best you can do? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and you wonder why you don't have revelation? You wonder why you don't have insight? Because you're hungry for material things. The material things is not Jesus' problem. That's not his problem. He walks on streets of gold. I tell people this all the time. You don't think Jesus has resources? He uses it for pavement. Oh, God's not going to provide for me. He, he, he walks on a sidewalk of gold, right? His walls of jasper. Jasper comes from the bottom of the seas. In those days, it was a precious stone. Gates of pearls. He sits on a sea of diamonds. Literally, do you sit on a sea of diamonds? I got a lakefront home. Is it a lakefront on diamonds? Is it? This is who your father is. Resources aren't his problem. Fans aren't his problem. Followers are his problem. This is what he seeks. He longs to give the riches to the kingdom to those who want him. I look for a man. My eyes roam to and fro, searching the earth to find one whose heart is truly mine. Why? That I might sow myself strong. Kratos. 
power in the eternal realm. Give me one whose heart is undiluted, whose passion is for me and me alone, and I will give him authority in all realms. That's <gasps> what it says. Where are you at? Christmas and Easter. Do you want him more than anything? He is the all in all. We treat him as common. He's not common. He's a king. He's your father. He says, if I'm your father, where's my honor? I do honor God. No, you honor God in your own way. Let's just be honest here. Right? Let's be honest. If you come and go and you can't be consistently bound to a church, you honor God in your own way. If you can't give, you honor God in your own way. If you cannot develop yourself spiritually and you cannot develop yourself or take advantage of all the opportunities that are afforded to you in this church, you're teaching a class today. Tom, what's it on? What's the class on, Melvin? EMP2, leadership training. He teaches Bible school. We have Bible school here. You can't develop yourself in any of that? You follow him at your convenience. I don't believe that's true. It's true. It's fine. You're, say it with me. If I have that attitude, come on. I will be loved. I will get heaven. But I will never experience my inheritance. You just won't. You just won't. You're born again, saved, going to heaven. You're not condemned. There's no condemnation. You're loved, but you're common. You're common. You're called to be uncommon, Jesus, but you settle for the common. Can I tell you a story about racehorses? Yes, I know. Denver going to tell me. Don't tell the story, but I'm going to tell the story. My family raised racehorses. My mother's family came from Kentucky, right? My grandfather, my great-grandfather, he owned bars, and he owned racehorse stables, among other things. This was my great-grandfather on my mother's side, right? So they basically go gamble. Horse racing used to be, there was no, before football, horse racing was the number one sport in America up until like the 40s or 50s. Horse racing and boxing, right? So we think of baseball, football, basketball as our number one sport. So back then it was horse racing and boxing, right? So my, my great-grandfather owned horse stables. I actually had a horse named after me too, by the way. And so they would raise thoroughbreds. So I grew up for a part of my life being around that, right? There were two types of horses. I tell this story all the time. There were thoroughbreds and there were guide ponies. The guide pony was the one that they could never motivate to do what the thoroughbred did. No, this guide pony had all the potential. This guide pony could be the best-looking horse on the, on the, on the, in, in the stable. He could have a muscular density, all of the stuff. He could look better than everyone else, but he would not do what the thoroughbred did. Therefore, the guide pony was disqualified from the race. Didn't mean he didn't get to hang out in the stable. He got to hang out in the stable, and he got the chance to walk the thoroughbred around the track to guide the thoroughbred. You understand that? The thoroughbreds were up in the morning. The thoroughbreds ate better oats. The thoroughbreds trained. The thoroughbreds were focused. The guide ponies, nah. They looked good. They had big Instagram pages. They had a lot of fans, right? They were buff, all show, no go. This is the way it is, Christian. Which one are you? Second service, you guys are getting some load here, man. I'm dropping weight here, man. This is weight. You're like, oh, dude, you're coming in heavy. I don't know why. Somebody here needs to hear this. This, is not my, this was not my first service message. And people sometimes are like, I go to both services. 
I'm like, oh, that's cool. They're like, because it's always different. First services, like, it's like I'm getting two messages. Well, I do my best. That's all I'm trying to do. But you have to decide who you want to be and what you want to be. I was driving this morning. I was talking to the Lord. You know what he told me? Because I'm debating all these things. I'm like, oh, God, oh, God. You know, anybody have to make a big decision and you're freaking out? Are you with me? Right? I have to make big decisions and I'm freaking out. And so I'm asking the Lord, I'm like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he's like, you can do this. I'm like, I know I can do it. I don't think I can do it. I don't know I think I can do it. He's like, Kevin, you only live once. That's what he told me. You live once. That, for whatever reason, that word into my heart sobered me. And I realized I got one shot. I don't get two. You know, I can make as many shots as I can in this one lane. I can shoot again and again and again. But I only got a certain amount of time. And so if I don't take these shots, it's not going to happen. Do you understand me? Does that, does that make sense to you? I, I don't want to be a guide pony. And a lot of you, you cry out, you want to be a thoroughbred, you want to be a thoroughbred, but you won't do what the thoroughbred does. You won't do it, right? It's just, it's just a thing. These guys were trying to impress each other. Jesus called them hypocrites. He said, you don't keep the law. This is crazy. I'm almost done. Got two points, I'm done. They sat in the seat of Moses. In other words, they held the office that Moses held, yet they didn't keep Moses' words. Yet, as a critic... Right? They would tell Jesus what he needed to do. They would criticize Jesus, but they themselves were hypocrites. They didn't even do the very thing that they were teaching. It's kind of like, uh, you know, our government, I think, is kind of like that. Right? Y'all remember the lockdowns, right? You guys couldn't go outside, but bless God, they were going to the park, jogging. The mayor of New York's out jogging. Hey, mayor, isn't, are you on lockdown? What? Huh? No lockdown. Governor of Michigan's taking his boat out. You couldn't take your boat out, but they could. Getting their hair done, going to the beauty parlor, getting their nails done. You couldn't do that, but they could. Thanksgiving, good God. You know, Governor California having a big Thanksgiving dinner the whole time, shutting down the whole state. Nobody's allowed to have Thanksgiving except us. Yeah, exactly. You got me. I'm firing you guys up here for some reason. I got to get, so. But that's the way it is. That's the way these guys were. They were like that. They would tell Jesus what he needed to do, and they themselves weren't doing it at all. And he's what he kept telling them. He'd say, you're a hypocrite. He says, you do all of these things, and you say all these things, and you don't, you're, you don't even qualify for this criticism. And then he starts to teach them about the Sabbath, and they want to kill him. This is even infuriates them. He speaks of a healing that he did. I healed a man on the Sabbath. So about a year before this, Jesus was in Jerusalem, about seven, eight months ago, about roughly in that time period. And he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, apparently this was an epic healing because almost a year later, they're still talking about this healing. So this guy had laid at the pool of Bethesda his whole life. He was the guy, you know, everybody saw him. Oh, you know, poor old Joe. You know, there he is, poor old Joe, poor old Joe. And the rabbis, yes, poor old Joe. They probably taught some sermons on poor old Joe. And now poor old Joe's walking around the city telling everybody Jesus healed him. He's up. And, and he did it on a Sabbath. And it wasn't even the healing that mesmerized them. To them, the problem was they can't even see the healing. They're like, you broke the law. You healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, are you serious? This is the state that these people were in. And he tells them, you don't keep the law of Moses. You're hypocrites. You circumcise. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you're already circumcised. Circumcision was, a, was an outward symbol of, of, of separation. The Bible says the inward symbol is now the thing. We're circumcised in our heart. 
in Christ. Hypocrites, you don't keep the law. They were trying to keep the law. The whole purpose, say it with me, the law, this is going to help some of you. I might get some things thrown at me again, but that's okay. Say this, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you're, some of you are hesitating. Say, come on, the Ten Commandments. We're never meant to be kept. You can't keep them. It's impossible. People say, we need to keep the Ten Commandments. I always ask them, how are you doing? How's it working out for you? How's it working out? You're keeping the Ten Commandments? You can't do it. The Bible says, Romans says, that the law, through the law, which is a summation, is the Ten Commandments, comes the knowledge of sin. So what, 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 the, what the law is, the Ten Commandments, is a mirror to show you you're a sinner. I'm a good person. Really? Let's hold up the mirror and see. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no idols before him. Right? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't steal. Right? How you doing? And then Jesus flips it around and says it's not outward, it's inward. It's not about your externals, it's about your internal. We're all guilty. And so the mirror, the law, the Ten Commandments are to show us. Romans says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Galatians says that the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Romans again says that Christ is the end of the law. So the idea is that the, 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 the law is to show you you are a sinner and to cause man to cry out for salvation. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's why when we come to Christ, we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. We're in the law of the Spirit. And so he's telling them, you can't, keep the, you, you can't keep the law. You don't keep the law. They didn't understand that the law was never even meant to be kept. Paul thought the law had to be kept. In Philippians, he says, I'm a Jew of Jews. I was a Pharisee. I was one of those guys. I came from a rich family. My family were wealthy merchants from Tarsus, and I was in the rabbinical school with Gamaliel. I was in the highest of high schools, and I was in the school, and I wore those robes, and I walked those paths. He said, that was me, Jew of Jews, born on, circumcised the eighth day. According to the law, blameless. The law, as the Jews understood the law to be, he was blameless. Because to them, it was all externals. If you kept the external, you were righteous. And Paul tells us again that he says, when I learned that I could not, when I read that you shall not covet, he realized I had no control over that because coveting is inward. Can I get a witness? Right? Sexual attraction is inward. <gasps> I say to you that anyone who lusts after a man or a woman has committed adultery. We're all guilty. That's the point. That's the, point, the point isn't like, I need to stop having sexual thoughts. This is what we do. How, how are you working with that? How, how are you, right? I do a lot of 20-something guys are like, I'm having sexual thoughts all the time. I'm like, it's because you're 24 years old. This is why you're having sexual thoughts. I know it's getting real quiet in here, right? You can't make, stop yourself from having sexual thoughts. That doesn't mean you act upon them. That doesn't mean you deviate and twist them around and turn it into something wicked. You, you, can't, you can't do that. You just can't. It's, it's the way it is, right? Women fantasize about love and the depth of romance and deep meaningfulness, and that's how they connect it sexually. Guys, they don't even think about that. They just go right there, you know? So it's the same thing. 
Women want romance. They want the knight in shining armor. They want this world that they can be. There's nothing wrong with it. You're made that way. It doesn't mean you twist it or distort it. And I'm digging myself a hole, and I'm trying to not make it too deep that I can't get out of it. So I'm trying, i got to close right now. Right. Say, Pastor Kevin is my friend. Come on. He's just trying to help me. That's all. Right? And he says, you do it all the time. So Jesus tells him, stop, the last thing. Jesus tells him, stop judging by outward appearances and judge with righteous judgment. He expected them to see who he was through what he said. He expected them to see who he was through what he did. This culture of people were trained this way from the time they were, they were children. God isolated a group of people to give them his ways so that when Messiah would come, there would be a nation on the earth that would get it. It took the Gentiles a long time to grasp this, right? They, they grasped it, but very, very slowly. I would even argue that, but whatever, I'm not going to make that argument. But anyway, so the, 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 he expected them to know, and they didn't know. And he says, don't judge me by my appearance, judge by righteous judgment. This is the beautiful thing about Jesus. Say this with me. Jesus is beautiful. He's amazing. There's nobody like him. He does not look at you outwardly. People look at you outwardly. They see your functional dysfunction. They see your complete and total dysfunction, and they make judgments on you. Do they not? You make judgments even on yourself which is worse. The Bible says if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart and he knows all things. Our biggest condemnation doesn't come from our critics, it comes from ourselves. But Jesus sees past everything and he sees the person behind the issue. And Jesus doesn't just see the person behind the issue, he understands the why. He understands that you were broken and it's from this brokenness that this action is coming. He understands that you've been abandoned and it's from this abandonment that this action is coming. He understands that you've been traumatized. The world traumatizes us, man. I don't know what, you, you know, your family may have not traumatized you, but I tell you, life will certainly traumatize you in one way or another. And he understands that the trauma and there's these decisions and these dysfunctions are coming from a different place. He sees you for who and what you are. Everybody else sees you. This is the whole alignment of the gospel, to see us ourselves as he sees us, to know as he knows. It's the whole idea. God doesn't judge you by the outward. You shouldn't judge yourself by the outward. God doesn't judge you by your mistakes. <gasps> he doesn't. You come to the Lord, you made a mistake, you screw up. It's a whole conversation, guys. It's a relationship. You say, well, what went wrong here, Kevin? I'm like, I don't know. A lot of things went wrong. But Lord, I did the best I could in the situation I was in with what I had available. That's all God expects. He expects your best. The very best you can do in whatever situation you're in with what you have available. He's not expecting you to be Superman or Superwoman, but he is expecting you to do your best with what you had and what you've had available. And that's the understanding that he places over our lives. The Bible says it is. For the Lord, do, Lord does not see as man sees. He land looks at the outward. Jesus looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart for Samuel 16, 7. That's what Jesus is referencing. And so the one thing, the issue with the Lord is going to look at your heart is when you stand before him. He's going to look at your heart and say, is Jesus in there? Am I in you? He's going to look. Every single person in the world will stand before Jesus. We will stand before him. Every one of us. Think about that. Put your life in perspective to that. And he will ask you, what did you do with me? What did you do with me? 
I gave you this. What did you do with me? Right? But the question he's asking to the people that don't know him, if you're not in his heart, then you have no place in his kingdom. That's, again, an inconvenient truth. But he invites you. He invites you to become part of the family. He invites you to come back home. He invites you to know God as Father. And the only way for you to know God as Father is through him. You say, how's that possible? The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has risen from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll come out of one world and come into another. Spiritually, there'll be a transition. Say, I don't understand it. You don't have to understand it. The Bible doesn't say understand. It says believe. It doesn't say understand with your head. It says believe with your heart. You can understand things that your mind cannot comprehend. It is possible. And so all you got to do is put your faith in Jesus. We're going to say a 40-second prayer, and we're going to close the service. And let's just pray together. We're going to pray here, and I want you to pray at home. Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. We have a prayer team available. Yes. If you need prayer, these people over here to pray for you. There's no, no issues that they will not pray for. They will pray for you. And let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.